Thank you for listening to the Coal Mine Podcast. This is David Cole from Dallas, Texas, and it's February 6, 2022. In this episode, I examine the constitutional limits on a school board's power to remove a book from a school library. Only one Supreme Court case deals directly with this issue. While it ruled against a removal decision, the case was decided back in 1982 over a dissent by William Rehnquist. Its framework is still the law, but is likely not consistent with the views of the current, more conservative Supreme Court. Citizens who disagree with the school board's book removal decision may well have strong policy arguments against removal and many practical ways to continue to assure access to any one book, but they should not assume that the First Amendment has any role to play in this context other than a general background one. The Supreme Court's one case about a school board's removal of a book from a library decided in 1982 has a name that only a lawyer could love. Board of Education Island Trees Union Free School District Number 26 at Al versus Pico. Not surprisingly, it is universally referred to as PICO. Despite the widespread agreement, though, on what to call the case, there is much less consensus on what it actually held, as well as its continued force today as a legal precedent. The dispute began in 1975 when a parent's organization objected to several books in a school district's high school and junior high libraries the next year the school book ordered their removal. The books included an anthology called The Best Short Stories by Negro Writers, edited by Langston Hughes, Black Boy by Richard Wright, and Slaughterhouse-Five by Kurt Vonnegut. A press release by the board called the removed books Anti-American, Anti-Christian, Anti-Semitic, and Just Plain Filthy, and said that it is our duty, our moral obligation, to protect the children in our schools from this moral danger as surely as from physical and medical dangers. The school board appointed a book review committee consisting of some staff and some parents to review the books at issue and recommend whether they should stay in the library, taking into account educational suitability, good taste, relevance, and appropriateness to age and grade level, The committee came back with a fairly nuanced report recommending some removal, recommending some retention under other circumstances, allowing access only with parental approval, that sort of thing. The board did not adopt any of those recommendations and simply removed the books from the library. Several students sued in federal court to block the removal of the books. The trial court ruled in favor of the school board and dismissed the case, and the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit reversed, finding that the students had raised a legitimate claim and could proceed to trial. And the Supreme Court agreed with that result, although the justices very much did not agree with one another about the reason for the result. The plurality opinion, which means the opinion not of the majority of justices, but the opinion with the most justices joining it that supports the outcome reached by the full court, was joined by Justices Brennan, Marshall, Stevens, and in part by Harry Blackman, and it had three main holdings. First, it recognized a student's right to receive ideas. It called that such a right a necessary predicate to the recipient's meaningful exercise of his own rights of speech, press, and political freedom, and pointed out that in the school context, access prepares students for active and effective participation in the pluralistic, often contentious society in which they will soon be adult members. From that starting point, that recognition of that right to receive ideas, the court identified what was inappropriate and what was appropriate. As to inappropriateness, the court said, if the petitioners, 
the school board in this case, intended by their removal decision to deny respondents access to ideas with which petitioners disagreed, and if this intent was the decisive factor in petitioners' decision, then petitioners have exercised their discretion in violation of the Constitution. Cited a number of cases about First Amendment topics, including ones involving schools, including West Virginia Board versus Barnett, the case from the World War II era about the mandatory Pledge of Allegiance, holding that it could not be required of students, which reminded that schools cannot, in the language of that case, prescribe what shall be orthodox in politics, nationalism, religion, or other matters of opinion. Third holding of the court was the counterpoint to that, what would be acceptable. Plurality observed, an unconstitutional motivation would not be demonstrated if it were shown the petitioners had decided to remove the books at issue because those books were pervasively vulgar, and also noted that the respondents concede that if it were demonstrated that the removal decision was based solely upon the educational suitability of the books in question, then their removal would be perfectly permissible. This focus on the intent of the board and the role that intent played in the decision that's reached by the board is closely related to a similar dispute that recurs throughout First Amendment litigation, a dispute over whether a particular restriction is content-based, focusing on what is actually being said, or on the time, place, and manner of speech, regulating non-speech conduct-type aspects of certain communications. The plurality, of course, was not a majority. That was only four justices, and then with only partial agreement by Justice Blackmun. Justice White produced the critical fifth vote. He concurred on procedural grounds unrelated to the First Amendment issue. And the remaining four justices, Chief Justice Berger, Justices Powell, Rehnquist, and O'Connor, dissented on various grounds. In particular, Justice Rehnquist disagreed at pretty much every turn about the existence of any right to receive ideas, the degree of deference due to uh, elected members of a school board, and the practical workability of the intent-based test that Justice Brennan developed. Six years later, the Supreme Court returned to school law in the case of Hazelwood School District versus Kuhlmeyer. That case held that a high school principal could, could censor two student-written articles in the school newspaper about divorce and teen pregnancy. That was not a case about books in the library, removing books from the library, but it was certainly one about speech in schools, and it was certainly also a shade more deferential to school administration than what was seen in the PICO case. That was back in the early 1980s. A couple of recent cases provide some examples of how the PICO case has played out in practice. And here I acknowledge the excellent work of Ryan Schroeder, a student at the University of Iowa College of Law, who published a thorough student note in that school's law review on this topic in 2021. The first of the cases I'll talk about is Campbell versus St. Tammany Parish School Board from the Fifth Circuit, our court of appeals that's local to us here in Texas, covering Texas, Louisiana, and Mississippi, decided in 2005. The book at issue there was titled Voodoo and Hoodoo. The first half of the book, in the words of the court, discusses the evolution and practice of voodoo and hoodoo in African-American communities in this country, including New Orleans. The second half, says the court, is devoted to a presentation of spells, tricks, hexes, and recipes that outline how to form the way to bring about particular events. It characterized the book overall as facially serious and scholarly, tracing the development of African tribal religion, its transfer to an evolution in the New World, and its survival in the United States. Fifth Circuit panel reviewed the state of the law after Pico and later than Hazelwood and concluded that it was unable to evaluate the case based on the record that had been presented to it. The lower court had resolved it on summary judgment, in other words, judgment based on the written record without having a live trial. The Fifth Circuit concluded that a trial was going to be necessary on whether or not the Constitution had been infringed. It noted a couple of concerns that it had. It specifically noted that many of the school board members had not even 
haven't read the book or had read less than its entirety before voting as they did. Many had done nothing more than browse through the book, while others had read only the several excerpts selected and furnished by a representative of the Louisiana Christian Coalition. The court also noted, and this is a direct tieback to PICO, where this same problem of delegation to an outside committee was a bad fact for the school board in that case. In this case, the Fifth Circuit noted, the school board's failure to consider, much less adopt, the recommendations of two previous committees to restrict the book's accessibility to eighth graders with written parental permission, but to leave the book on the library shelf in apparent disregard of its own outlined procedures. Thus concluded the court, In the absence of an undisputed statement by the school board as a single voting body, we are faced with diverse, conflicting, and frequently ambivalent statements of 12 individuals, which statements need to be further developed at trial. Basically, a result favorable to the students challenging the removal of the book. Did not actually find an unconstitutional action, and in fact reversed a summary judgment that had been in favor of the students, but indicated that having a fractured statement of intent by various members of the board for various reasons that appeared to be in violation of its own policies was probably going to have a hard time at trial. A counterpoint from the United States Court of Appeals from the 11th Circuit. It arose in Florida and is titled ACLU versus Miami-Dade County School Board from 2011. It involved a book called Vamos a Cuba, which explored what life is like for children in Cuba. A parent who had formerly been a prisoner in Cuba had a quarrel with the book. He said it was inaccurate about Cuban life. Like the Fifth Circuit case I was just talking about, this ACLU case was reviewed by a three-judge panel, members of the 11th Circuit, and it split two to one. The majority found that the school board had acted correctly, it observed. We find from the evidence in this record, including the school board majority's consistent statement that it was removing Vamos a Cuba from the school library shelves because of factual inaccuracies and the undisputed fact that the book does contain inaccuracies, that those inaccuracies were what motivated the board. If there had been no factual inaccuracies, the book would not have been removed. Again, two ties directly back to Pico. One, there was a consistent action by the board instead of problems explaining why they were rejecting recommendations they received, and they were able to identify a specific factually verifiable problem with the book, unlike simply having statements of opinion based upon a partial review of mere sections of it that was problematic to the Tammany Parish case. In sum, the PICO framework has been holding up in the courts, albeit with a dash of deference from Hazelwood, but The difficulties described by uh, Justice Rehnquist and other dissenters are also apparent. It's hard to look inside people's minds. You can't really know what people were thinking when they made a particular decision. You have to look at examples of that, and the courts have looked at any number of pieces of evidence to try to make that decision, including whether the actions have been consistent, whether the board speaks with a uniform point of view, and whether it can point to matters of fact rather than matters of subjective opinion. Where does this leave us today? I can offer two reference points. One is modern, and one goes back in time to around the time of Pico. The modern one is the connection between the current Supreme Court and the dissent in Pico by then-Justice, later Chief Justice William Rehnquist. At the time of Pico, he was one of the young conservative firebrands on the court. On the current Supreme Court, he would probably fit somewhere in the middle of the six-justice conservative majority. If this issue returned to the Supreme Court, if Pico, on its facts, was in front of the current Supreme Court today, it might not be inclined to overrule the Pico framework outright, 
but it would certainly share Justice Rehnquist's skepticism about the nature of the right involved and the practicality of the test that was suggested by Justice Brennan's plurality in that case. The other observation from further back in time, 1980, Pruneyard Shopping Center versus Robbins. That case held that California, under its constitution, could allow leafleting and other such speech-related activity in a public shopping mall. California Supreme Court, in its opinion, had observed shopping centers to which the public is invited can provide an essential and invaluable forum for exercising the speech rights of the people wanting to communicate with others in the mall. At the time, it seemed like a big deal. Shopping malls were everywhere. But today, who really remembers Pruneyard because who really remembers malls? Communication in malls may have been essential and invaluable in 1980. By 2020, I'm sure there are malls where people want to communicate somewhere, but it certainly wouldn't be characterized as essential and invaluable for those speakers. There are many other fora, and of course, they're able to go online, just as the retail business that was in those malls itself went online. That's the lesson for shopping malls, but the carryover to school libraries is obvious as well. In 1982, there might not have been any other access for the students in Pico to some of the books in question on that list. But today, with the wide availability of books on the internet and the wide availability of groups that want to encourage access by junior high and high school students to controversial thought-provoking works of literature, the fact may be that the school library now resembles something like the shopping mall in Pruneyard. It has symbolic value, it is still important for some people, but as an overall contributor to dialogue in society and exchange of ideas in society, it's just not as important as it once was. Today on Coal Mind, I examined the constitutional limits on a school board's power to remove a book from a school library. The only Supreme Court case on this issue held in that case, the school board had overstepped its bounds, but it did not clearly define the rule of law that supported that holding, and there are good reasons to doubt the continued viability of that holding with the makeup of the Supreme Court today. While there are many strong arguments available to proponents and opponents of any particular book, issues involving the First Amendment may not be the most important of those considerations. Another Supreme Court case from around the time of the school book case suggests that with the passage of time, school libraries may have become like the shopping malls in Pruneyard and generally faded away in importance as a constitutional matter. In upcoming episodes of Coal Mind, in addition to episodes focusing on specific court cases and legal issues, I look forward to bringing you more interviews with knowledgeable observers of the legal world, such as my recent talk with jury consultant Jason Bloom. If you like this episode, I encourage you to join other happy listeners and leave a nice five-star review on Apple Podcasts. And this podcast is also now available on Amazon Music if you enjoy using that service. I appreciate you listening, and I look forward to sharing with you again soon. <music>